Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the debt that Jesus has paid on our behalf. Lord, our sins, Lord, that have separated us from you, Lord, and the fellowship that you created us to have with you, Lord, but Jesus has paid our debt. So we praise you for the new life that we have in Jesus this morning, and we pray that you would, over these next few minutes, as we look together at your word, that you would use them by your spirit to bring new life to our hearts and to our spirits this morning, that we would walk and live as you would have us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, you can be seated, and we're going to look today at Psalm 8, if you want to go ahead and be turning there. As you do that, uh, things are falling down here. Okay, this week, I think the best thing that I saw on Facebook, um, which isn't necessarily a high bar, but I saw a meme that said that if you are having issues with your glasses fogging up because you're wearing a face mask, then you might be entitled to condensation. <laughs> so I thought we'd start with, a, start with a dad joke this morning since it's Father's Day. All right, so happy Father's Day. Um, no, but 2020 has not been a year that has gone as we expected it to go. I would say that's safe to say. If it has gone how you expected it, then we'll talk afterwards. But I like to think of myself as a realist, right? Someone who is optimistic, but not naively so. Someone who is cautious, but not cowering in fear. Someone who looks at all the information, takes it all in, and then tries to draw the right conclusion. And yet, the truth is that no matter what it is we're talking about, I can't take in all the information available on a given issue. And even if I could, my judgment would still sometimes be off, because each of us are influenced not just by the facts of the matter, but also by our own experiences in a fallen and broken world. But we also know it isn't even just the brokenness of the world around us that makes our judgment suspect at times. It's also the brokenness within us because sin causes us to view the world with ourselves at the center instead of the one who actually is at the center. And when we do that, when we view the world with us at the center, sometimes that causes us to want to say, you know, everything's going to be okay when those around us are crying out in pain and demanding that things need to change. Other times it causes us maybe cynically just to look around at the state of the world and say things are never going to get any better instead of doing the hard work that God is calling us to do to make things better. Because our perspective in this life is skewed by pressure from without and corruption within our own hearts. It's far too often the case that our expectations don't correspond to reality and as a result we don't respond to the ways to the world around us in the ways that we should. A.W. Tozer famously wrote in The Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He would go on to explain how if we start from the wrong view of who God is, ultimately it's going to corrupt everything else that we do. It's important that we see God clearly for who he is, how he's revealed himself in the scriptures. That's the only way that we're going to see ourselves clearly and see the world around us as we should. It's important that we recognize that the reality of the God revealed in Scripture doesn't always line up with our expectation of how God might act or who God is. Because we're tempted to start with what we see and hear 
and know from the world around us, a fallen world, finite creatures living in that world, and we try to project our understanding of the world onto who God is. But when we do that, we inevitably find that God is not who we expect him to be, and he doesn't work how we expect him to work. And so in Psalm 8, we see and hear David marveling at the unexpected majesty of God. We see him correcting our views of God that sometimes fall short. And so let's read it together, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David starts and ends this song with the same declaration of praise. It's a celebration, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The name that he's talking about there is the name that God identifies himself by to Moses and to the people of Israel. It's his covenant name, the name of the promises that he gave to his people. But what David declares is God isn't just great and mighty in Israel, but he's majestic in all the earth. God in his majesty rules over everything and everyone. So when David sings about the name of the Lord, He's singing about the nature and the character of God, the reputation of the Lord, about what he's done to rescue the people from slavery in Egypt, to lead them through the wilderness into the promised land, and what he had done to sustain his people despite their pattern of sinful disobedience. O Lord, our Lord, he says. David's pointing us to the relationship between the Lord and his people, and also to how God's majesty is revealed in all of the earth, with all people. This opening refrain that returns to conclude Psalm 8, it tells us what David is celebrating, what he's praising, tells us how to understand what we read between. It tells us this is a psalm about praising the majesty of God, a psalm that marvels at and calls us to marvel at this reality, that God reveals his majesty in unexpected ways. God reveals his majesty in unexpected ways. So as we go through Psalm 8, there's this pattern that we see emerging as we read through it together. When you read it, it's almost as if David is having an argument or a discussion with an invisible opponent. It's like he's having a conversation, but we only have his side. It's as if someone has come up to David and said, well, if God is the majestic ruler of all the earth, then this is how I believe that God would act. This is what I believe he would do. And it's like David is responding here. No, God's majesty might not look how you expect it to look. It might be surprising. It might be unexpected. We don't know exactly what inspired David to write this psalm, but what we do know is that he paints us this picture that defies our expectation of how a majestic king would look and behave. So we see God reveals his majesty in unexpected ways. So over the next few minutes, we're just going to look at this pattern that we see beginning to play out. We're going to think about how we would expect a majestic God or a majestic king to 
be and how we would expect that God to behave, right? What's our expectation and the expectation of the world around us about how God should act? And then we're going to look at the reality of who God is and how he's at work in the world around us. How does God actually move in the world around us? And then we're going to look at how we should respond. So the pattern is this, expectation, reality, and response. We're going to see it play out here three times in this psalm. So let's just begin here by thinking about what comes to mind when we think about the word majesty. It's probably some of the things we already sang this morning, is it not? Words like power and strength and might, authority. When we hear majesty, then we expect to see a ruler who is probably surrounded by the most powerful army and the wisest advisors. Why? Because we would expect a majestic ruler, a mighty ruler to be strong enough to deter any uprisings within his kingdom and to deter any threats from outside the kingdom. That is a reasonable human perspective on majesty and on strength. Let me just look around at the world today and we see rulers exerting their dominance over those they're put in place to lead. It's what we think strength and power looks like. And so we're tempted to apply that same definition to God. And when we do, then who do we expect God to call to be his people? Who do we expect God to call to carry out the important work that he wants to do in the world? We would expect God to call the strong or the smart, maybe. Those with the most to contribute to his calls. Those we would see as those who have the most to offer. That's what makes the most sense for a great and powerful king to do. And as David begins this psalm, we might think that's where he's going. He says, you set your glory above the heavens. That is an unqualified statement of strength and glory. God isn't just majestic in all the earth. He's glorious above all things. And so maybe we're on track when we expect God to show his strength by calling the strong, calling warriors who are well-trained and prepared for the battle to come. But verse 2 says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Babies and infants, these two words David chooses, they point us to babies who are nursing and to toddlers. These are not people you would point to as the strongest among us. Babies and infants are completely dependent on their parents, on those who care for them. They aren't strong and powerful. David points us to those who are weak and vulnerable and says they're the ones in whom God has established his strength. So we might expect a majestic God to call those who are strong, but God calls the weak in order to reveal his strength. When God worked through the Israelite army to lead them into the promised land, it was his strength, not theirs, that was being revealed. And when God worked through David to kill Goliath, it was God's strength, not David's, that was being revealed. God calls the weak in order to reveal his strength. Strength. It's how he worked in David's day. It's still how he works today. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning verse 26, wrote these words. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom 
from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God calls the weak in order to reveal his strength, and that includes us. This morning, maybe that bursts some of your bubbles this morning. If it does, then so be it. We need that sometimes, don't we? Because there is freedom in the unexpected majesty of God, knowing that he didn't call us because of our strength and our wisdom. We're needed where his are somewhere lacking, right? We know that God is sufficient, that he is up to the task of what he wants to do in the world. And so then why do we feel like as we follow him and as we live for him that we always have to have it all together, right? Why do we feel the need always to prove that we're strong or that we are tough, The expectation is that God would call the strong because, I mean, he did call us, right? The reality is that God calls the weak in order to reveal his strength because he did call us after all. So what should be our response? David is doing it here in this psalm. It's what we just did a few moments ago. Paul points us to it in 1 Corinthians 131, boast in the Lord. We hear it from the mouth of Jesus in Matthew 21, 16. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Our response when God's strength is revealed in our weakness is we sing of the strength of God. Our lips should be filled with songs of God's majesty and glory and strength. It's a song that once you hear it, you can't get it out of your head or out of your heart. So we sing of the strength of God. We praise him not just in this building, but everywhere that he is Lord. We praise him not just with the words that come out of our mouths, but even with the words that we type into our phones and devices when we text or the words that we post on Facebook, even the words that we share when we hit that share button on Facebook. And we do that with everything that we do because he is worthy of all of our praise. We sing of the strength of God instead of insisting that we are strong on our own. That's what we do when we see the unexpected majesty of God. Expectation, reality, response. We see it play out again in verses 3 and 4. David turns his attention to the night sky, to the vast expanse of heaven's created by the works of God's fingers, the moon and the stars, the size of which right, are nearly impossible for us to comprehend, to wrap our minds around. But he tells us God set them in place. He ordained them. He established them. It's a word with permanence. It isn't something that's set in place one second and then the wind comes and just blows it away. No, when God set the sun and moon and stars in place, they are set in place. Woke up one Saturday last fall to find that my mailbox had fallen over at the end of my driveway. And my first thought was that somebody had probably helped it fall over. But what I came to figure out was that the post had just completely rotted off in the ground. And so it was laying. So guess what I got to spend all of my day doing? I got to spend my day setting a new post in place. And thankfully, it wasn't really that difficult once I got the materials that I needed, and that's good news because we already said God calls the weak. But the point is, there's now enough concrete around the post that it's not going anywhere for a while. But God, we know, when he set the sun and the moon and the stars in place, he did it with much greater ease than I was able to set that mailbox in place. 
We know the heavens are the works of his fingers and they remain in place to this day. That is the majesty and the power of God, a strength and power that's beyond description and beyond our full comprehension. So when we think of how big God is, then maybe we expect a God that is that big and that holy and that awesome to want to keep us at arm's length. Just think about it. Think about those who are most powerful in our world. You can't just walk up to the President of the United States anytime you want and start a conversation. You can't just walk into the courts of most kings or queens and strike up a conversation. There's usually some distance between those with power and those who don't have the same amount of power. And isn't the disparity between my power and God's infinitely greater than any of those examples? I mean, it just seems natural that God would work the same way, that he would maybe view us with just a touch of annoyance or disdain, or that he would get tired of us coming to him constantly with the same problem over and over again. I mean, would a God as majestic and powerful as the one who spoke the universe into existence really want to think about me or care for me or hear from me? We expect God to keep us at arm's length, but the reality is that we see in this psalm, God comes near to care for his people. God comes near to care for his people. Again, we hear David, he's just marveling at the unexpected majesty of God, genuinely perplexed by a God that is so mindful of humanity. The word mindful there, it's translated elsewhere in the scriptures as remember, specifically in moments where God would recall his covenant promises to his people and show mercy to them. It was the one used when God remembered Noah and heard and those on the ark and protected them. It's the one that was used when God remembered Rachel and heard her cries for a child of her own. It's the word that was used when God would call his people to remember their plight in Egypt and to think about how he had rescued them and delivered them. It's a word that's central to the relationship of God and his people, a relationship where he promised to never leave them nor forsake them. God was with his people in Egypt, with them in the wilderness, with them in the land, with them when they worshiped him, and with them when they disobeyed him. And so David says, what is man that you're mindful of? And what is the son of man that you care for him, the descendants of Adam who rebelled against you, God? Why do you care for us? It's a word that means to visit or to attend to, used when God visits us, visits his people who have strayed with either his tender mercy or at times with his tough love. We might expect God to be aloof or to keep us at arm's length, but God comes near to us. Even in our sin, even in our brokenness, he comes near to care for his people. And so then what is our response? It's become popular in recent years to criticize people. When there's a tragedy that happens in our society, some will go on social media and will say thoughts and prayers to those involved, right? It's become a popular way to criticize people. The criticism usually sounds something like this. We don't need thoughts and prayers, right? We need action that makes a difference that will prevent this from happening again, right? The problem with that criticism, though, is this, is that we have a God who hears and responds to the prayers of his people. A God who comes near to care for his people. And so praying is not the same as inaction, as just sitting on our hands. Prayer is always the right place 
to begin. It's the right place for us to end. But there is a point where that criticism sometimes gets it right. Because if we're saying thoughts and prayers, but we never take any action that puts us near to those who are hurting to care for them, then we're not reflecting the way that God cares for us. It isn't one or the other, right? It is both. We reflect God's care and our care for others. That is our response to his coming near to care for us. It's seen in the priority of prayer in our lives. It's also seen in the ways we prioritize service and ministry, especially in the ways that we reach out to those who are hurting, the ways we listen to those who are different from us, the way we speak God's grace into the lives of one another when we need encouragement. In Jesus, the God who created the heavens has come near to rescue us from our sin. The question this morning is, how are we drawing near to those in need around us, to the homeless in our community, to children who are living in unstable family situations, to the elderly who are feeling isolated or forgotten, especially now more than ever. We expect God to keep us at arm's length, but God comes near to care for his people. So we reflect God's care for us and our care for others. Expectation, reality, response. See it playing out one more time here. Yes, God calls the weak. Yes, God comes near to care for us. But of course, some would say, if God's going to care about us, then it's going to be kind of in a patronizing way, look down on us a little bit. Yes, he cares, but he's not going to trust us with anything that really matters, is he? I mean, does he not know how weak we are? Does he not know how limited we are in our understanding? I mean, he cares, but he won't trust us with anything significant, right? We expect God's great glory to make our lives seem insignificant. I mean, there are 7.8 billion people in the world, right? What difference am I ultimately going to make? It seems like a logical conclusion. Yes, God cares about us, but it isn't like what we do or say or think is really going to make any difference in the world. That's the view so many people have of God. It's where many believers wind up living because, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is in control. And when we understand God's majesty purely from a human perspective, we don't expect there to be much room left for anything we do or say or think. But yet again, we see in the psalm that expectation doesn't equal reality. David says that God has made mankind a little lower than the heavenly beings or the angels. He says God has crowned a humanity with glory and honor. We expect God's great glory to make our lives insignificant. But the reality is this. God crowns us with glory and gives us dominion. He crowns us with honor and gives us dominion. That's royal language that David uses in this psalm about us, about God's people. It's God designating us as his royal representatives, as his ambassadors on the earth. Language that echoes Genesis 1, where God created us in his image to reflect his glory and nature on the earth. And part of that is the significant work that he has given us to do. God has given us dominion over creation, over the work of his hands. He's given us the important work of caring for the animals, the birds, the fish, and every created thing. In Genesis 1.26, he says this, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God crowns us with honor and gives us dominion. All right, that sounds awesome, but what does it actually mean in practice? What is our response to the crown of glory that, and the dominion that God has given us? And so first, as we think about that, let's just say what it shouldn't be. It shouldn't mean that we boast in who we are, that we seek our own glory. Not if we understand that the honor that we have, the glory that we have been given, are ultimately His. And it shouldn't be that we pursue our own selfish gain without regard for those around us, without regard for the rest of God's creation. So what does it look like for us to exercise the dominion that God has given us? Our character should reflect God's character. Our work should reflect the way he works. So our response is this. We pursue God's glory with passion and with purpose. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever we say or think or do should be to point people to the glory of God. It should all be to help people see more clearly the unexpected majesty of God. Like David, as we marvel at the glory of God of all creation, we should pursue his glory. We should live and work at whatever we do to make him known. But we know that when we do that, if we aren't seeking to protect those who are vulnerable and caring for those in most desperate need around us, then we're, we're, then we're not offering a clear reflection of the God David is singing about here in Psalm 8. And we know in our own lives that's often the case. We know that as we go through our lives, we often pursue our own purposes and our own passions, our own glory at the expense of others and instead of God's glory. The Apostle Paul tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, yes, we were created to pursue God's glory with passion and purpose. So is everyone that we will ever meet. But in our sin, we fall short. We aren't able to always do it. So what is the answer? The answer, David is pointing us to the answer here in Psalm 8. The author of Hebrews, though, makes it more clear who he's pointing to, though. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, it says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone." Instead of pursuing God's glory with passion and purpose, we have pursued our own, but there is a man who has perfectly pursued God's glory. Jesus suffered for our sins and now sits at the right hand of God the Father, who has put everything in subjection to him. He died so that we can have eternal life. He was raised so that 
Our sin can be put to death so that we can live for God's glory with passion and purpose. And so this morning, the first question for us, if we're going to live for God's glory, if we're going to live with passion and purpose for him, is this, do you know Jesus? Have you received the grace of God through faith in Christ, or are you still living in your own strength or for your own glory? Because if you don't know Jesus personally, then today we would love to talk more with you about following him. Today, as we come to the end of our time in the Word, you can respond in the ways that you'll see on the screen this morning. You can text us, call us, email us the same ways that we've been doing here recently. Let us know how we can help you respond to Jesus this morning, whether it's for the first time or whether you've been following Jesus for a while. For those of us who know Jesus, the question for us is how are we pursuing God's glory? Is he our greatest passion or is it someone or something else? A good way to answer that question might be to look at your bank statement or it might be to look at your calendar. No, one of the things that the recent quarantine revealed to me was my pursuit of busyness and activity. And that a calendar, even filled with good things, doesn't necessarily mean that we're pursuing his glory. With your friends, with your family, with your coworkers, how are you pointing those around you to the glory of God? If someone in your life has the expectation that God only chooses the strong or that God only calls those who have it all together, does your life point them to the reality that God shows his strength in our weakness? Does your life sing the song of God's strength or your own strength? Or if someone in your life has the expectation that God is one who keeps people at arm's length, does your life show them that you're the hands and the feet of a God who comes near to care for his people? Does your care for others reflect God's care for you? Or if someone in your life has the expectation that God's great glory makes their life insignificant, does your life point them to the one in whom you have purpose, that our purpose as God's image bearer has been restored through Jesus, the one who perfectly wears the crown of glory and honor? Do our lives point people to him? Is it possible that somebody could know us over an extended period of time and not know about what Jesus has done for them. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When we start with what we see and hear and know from our limited experience as finite creatures living in a fallen world in order to try to understand who God is and how he works in our world, our expectations of who he is will always fall short of capturing his majesty because he's bigger and stronger than we can fathom. And he's nearer and more caring than we would ever dream. That is the unexpected majesty of God. It's what led David to sing in this song, leads us to sing this morning, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So as we stand to sing in a moment, let's respond to the unexpected majesty of God who shows his strength and our weakness, who comes near to care for us, who gives us purpose and passion to live by. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you, God, that you are not a God who is created in our image, Lord, but that you're a God who has created us in your image. 
Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is strong when we are weak. We praise you, Lord, because you're a God who comes near to care for us even when we rebel against you, even when we sin against you. We pray that you would help us to draw near to those who are hurting, even among us, Lord, to draw near to those who are hurting in the world around us, Lord, that we would be your hands and your feet in this world. We pray today, God, that you would help us to see the significance that you have given us as people created in your image, as people who are called by the name of Jesus to an important purpose, to an important mission of being ambassadors of your grace and of your mercy to the world around us, Lord. Help us to be people who point to the unexpected majesty of God, Lord. People who may not always fit with the cookie-cutter image of what the world says Christians should be or who the world says we should be, Lord, but help us to be people who stand where your word calls us to stand and who walk where your spirit leads us to walk. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.